Welcome. Subject of this discussion and talk is the true revelation, static or expansive. That title sounds a bit obscure to you. Basically, what it means is the revelation of God's purposes through his prophets, through all history. Is this something that was just always the same and that God just kept repeating what he'd said before to hold it together? Or is there something here that began to build up to expand, to grow, to pick up momentum until it finally led to a climax. And we're going to see that that's the big difference between Islam and Christianity. Islam claims the former, Christianity claims the latter. I've often said to myself that if I was just an objective outsider, I would conclude after a study of world religions that only one of these two could possibly be the truth. Judaism, obviously, in its time, held the core of God's initial revelations. But Judaism, particularly in the Old Testament, as you build up to the minor prophets, does pick up a momentum. Now, I'm going to just give you an experience I had with a young Jewish guy many years ago who that explains in a nutshell what I might say at length and not really get the point across. He said to me, he said, you know, he said, we read our scriptures. He said, we re I've read what you call the Old Testament. I've read the Jewish scriptures right through. He said, and from Genesis right through to Isaiah and right through to the minor prophets, he said, it clearly picks up momentum. It starts getting exciting. God's moving towards something. A Messiah is promised. Glorious days for the people of God are promised. He said, and then suddenly it just drops out in thin air. He said, about two and a half thousand years ago, and we've never heard from God since. <laughs> and that to me just sums up the whole sort of inadequacy of Judaism. It uh, moved towards the fulfillment of God's purposes, but it never got there. Now, we're going to look at these two, Islam Christianity. They both claim to be the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was moving towards and see where we are. We're not going to look much at Islam. We're going to look at it the other way around. We're going to look at it on the expansive revelation because that's our message to the Muslims. But just let me put it in a context first. Islam is not a new religion according to the Quran. It is in Surah 10 verse 37, it is said to be a tasdik. The Quran is a tasdik. That word means it is just a confirmation of when, what went before it. And Muslims will tell you that Islam is not a new religion at all, but that it really came back to restate the original religion of Moses and David and Jesus that as these went along, they got corrupted, they got undermined, they got exaggerated. And so God's aim was to always just sort of pull it back to where it was originally. Unfortunately, Islam has never been corrupted, so we can follow it faithfully, and that's what we do. That's a sort of Muslim attitude. But if the Muslims are right, then the original religion of God and the final religion of God, which is the same, is what I can only call formal monotheism. Nothing more than that, just a belief in God and conforming to a pattern. Islam, more than any other religion on earth, focuses on a tremendous amount of works, ceremonies, rituals, and they're repetitive. Every time you go to mosque, you pray the same prayers. You go through the same form of the rakat. You don't go through it once, you go through it two, three, maybe four times. It's always the same. Hajj pilgrimage is the same. Everything's the same. Every prayer call, every adhan is the same. It's real parade ground stuff in my view. It's, a, it's an attempt to marshal everybody into a sort of single uniform and get everybody doing the same thing at the same time. 
not much room here for individual thought, individual search for God, <coughs> or anything like that. You're simply part of a bigger community, and you only fulfill your duty if you just simply do what everybody else is doing and repeat it again and again and again till the end of your life. Basically, you go around in constant circles in life, and you end up where you began. Now, the Bible is very, very different. This has a progression, this book, Old to New Testaments particularly, and it's moving towards a climax all the time. God drawing near to his people, God's desire to have a living personal relationship with his people and to personally communicate on the same level with his people and the steps and the, and the sort of growing um, desiring God's heart to get there by whatever means. That's what you see in the Christian Bible. Put it quite plainly, you can see into the heart of God in the Bible. The more you go through it, the more you see it. Islam doesn't even know whether God has a heart. <clears throat> I remember the one occasion in my life where I had the privilege of preaching a Christian sermon in a mosque. I was actually given the pulpit, stood on the mimbar, and I had a whole Muslim audience in front of me after the evening prayers, and I was allowed to preach a 30-minute sermon to them. And the sermon title was The Heart of God in the Bible. <clears throat> and I said, Allah has no heart. He is soulless according to the Quran. Do you think one of the congregation even frowned at me? Not at all. Just looked blankly at me. They knew it. They understand that. <coughs> when we go <coughs> into the Christian scriptures and the Jewish scriptures, <coughs> we see a very different picture. And I'm going to go back to the great lawgiver Moses at a time when it looked as though God's religion was the same as Islam. There are tremendous emphasis on ceremonies there and on fine detail as to how the Jews were to worship, what festival days they were prepared to have, and so on. But looking into Exodus, you see hints all over the book that it was a very different picture. Moses was a man who had a very close relationship with God. And the reason was because God himself had moved among his people. He was there. He was no longer up in heaven above. He was down right on earth below among his people. The contrast here with Islam, where in the fulfillment of everything God was doing, you still only have an angel, Jibreel, who comes down from heaven only with a book and recites it to Muhammad over a period of time and gives it to him piecemeal for him to give to everybody else. And it triggers one of these uh, repetitive religions. Well, this is totally different. Here we don't even have an angel coming down. We have God himself coming down to live among his people because that was his desire to get close to them. Exodus 19, verse 10 to 11. God instructed Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments and be ready by the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And he spoke to the people directly, and they heard his words when he gave them the Ten Commandments. And then from there it went further. <clears throat> God instructed Moses. He said, I want you to build an ark, and I want you to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And so this little tabernacle tent was built, and in it the Ten Commandments that had been inscribed on the tablets placed in an ark. And this is what God said to Moses in Exodus 25, 22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from the two cherubim that are upon the ark of the testimony, 
I will speak with you of all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Face to face, God himself speaking to uh, Moses. The nation had, in fact, even more than this, they had a visible proof that God was among them. Whenever Moses entered the tent that he had constructed, Exodus 33 verse 9 says, a pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the door of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When the people saw the cloud, they would rise up and worship. And then Exodus 33:11 just finally gives you the real seal on this. It says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. In other words, Moses, you and I are on a level footing. In fact, Moses was so overwhelmed that God was prepared to come down and live among his own people that he said to him just a few verses later, verse 16, is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from all other people that are on the face of the earth? There you are. Well, we're beyond Islam already. Islam has nothing comparable with this at the time of Muhammad that God's presence was actually manifested as God himself spoke to the patriarch face to face. In fact, it was so close that Moses dared, and I mean this, this is an understatement, dared to ask God to reveal his glory on earth to him. That's a remarkable challenge. You compare that to the Muslim Miraj, which is only a tradition based on Zoroastrian traditions, Gnostic traditions, long before it, with the same mythology that the, the figurehead, the prophet, or whatever he is, goes up through all the heavens and eventually comes into the glorious presence of God himself and has a conversation with him or sees his glory. Now here it was the opposite. Moses didn't descend into heaven. God descended himself to live among the people. And so Moses on earth, on that little piece of dust and real dust in the Sinai wilderness of all places, says to God, I pray you, show me your glory. And God responded, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. Exodus 33, 18 to 19. Already, as I said, we're far beyond Islam here. A visible presence of God among his people. Uh, there was a cloud there that used to sit over the mercy seat and in front of the tabernacle. Whenever Moses spoke, that cloud shone. Um, at night, the cloud shone. It, was, it, it almost looked as though it was on fire at night. It was there by day, it was visible, and at night it was luminous. It was a sign at all times that God was among his people says that when Moses came down <coughs> from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in chapter 34, verse 29, he did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. That's how close they were. His face reflected the light of God because he was that close to God. Whenever he came out from speaking to the Lord, the people of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And the amazing thing is, as usual in the Quran, you have a statement confirming something without any explanation of the implications of this. The Quran confirms this. It says in Surah 4, 164, and to Moses, Allah spoke directly. And that's clearly in comparison with any other prophet, including Muhammad himself. So there's nothing further. 
tantalizing little admission of what we're talking about here without knowing anything more about it. The story of Moses in the Bible concludes in these words in Deuteronomy 13 verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now there we've gone way beyond Islam. And the reason is because God wanted that. He wanted to get close to his people. He wanted them to live in obedience to him, to be true to him. And he would have been willing to stay among them. He was determined to guarantee their security, guarantee their prosperity, guarantee their future place in the land of Canaan if only they would just do one thing, walk in his ways. And at that time, he would have been content simply to allow that, provided they did not sin deliberately and rebel deliberately against them. In fact, they were flesh and blood and just men of dust didn't matter. But unfortunately, people of Israel did resist. Exodus 20 verse 19, they said to Moses, oh, you speak to us and we'll listen to you, but don't let God speak to us or we'll die. The reason being, they didn't like him. When Moses went up on the mountain, to receive the Ten Commandments, and he was there for 40 days, the people immediately said to Aaron, Up, make for us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. What they really meant was, as for his God, we'd like to shake him off. For 400 years in the land of Egypt, despite all the pressures, the persecutions, the harassment that they went through, they still believed in God. They never let go of him. Now, when for the first time they found out who their God really was. Now they turned against him and said, now we turn to another God. Give us a golden calf. God's anger grew deep within him. Time and again he threatened to destroy them. In Exodus 32, 9 to 10, God said, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And it's important to pick this up because at this stage, we not only have a God drawing close to his people, but we have this almost unbelievable reaction, the people reacting violently against him and saying, we don't want him, don't want him to rule over us. So a sharp reaction follows. But this tells us two things. Firstly, that the holiness of God in the revelation we have in the Bible is greater than that in Islam. Secondly, that the tension between God among his people when they sinned against him resulted in sinners being treated very, very harshly. They were slaves to sin. They were, they were in a rebellious condition towards God. That's how he took it. They weren't, this wasn't just wrongdoing that could be forgiven. Allah who could just say, I forgive whom I will and I punish whom I will and I do as I like and whatever people do doesn't affect me. I just make my own decisions about these things. Oh, no. The God of the Bible is a holy God. And this is why there was a veil in that tabernacle between him and the people. Just a thin veil. God's way of saying, it's just that I am perfectly holy. But if you will maintain an upright condition, it'll be a thin veil. There'll be nothing much more between me and you. You don't come right into my presence because I cannot tolerate any kind of imperfection. But I'll make the veil as thin as it can be because beyond that I'll accept you if you will just walk in my ways. Instead, because they rebelled against him and showed how hostile the human condition is towards God, there was nothing but trouble. Oh, they'd perform his rituals. They didn't want his heart. They didn't want to know the depth of his being. Well, for a long time after the time when God finally brought them into the land of Israel, he let go of the nation. He could see 
that there was no point in drawing that close to them ever again. It, uh, because if he did, going to cause trouble, and he, as he threatened to do so often in the wilderness, he might at any moment have just said, I've had enough, Whack, cut them off. So for a while, generations to come, you just see the nation of Israel finding its own way. With God still looking after it, still seeking, still desiring, still yearning, but not being as close or not so obviously close as he had been before. But eventually things began to change. And when David came along, the Lord God said, and it's quoted in Acts 13:22, I found in David a man after my own heart who will do all my will. For once he found a leader like Moses, like Abraham, with a heart for God. Most of the time, and as it went on in later history, you would find individuals, usually insignificant individuals with a heart for God. But now to get a leader of the nation, a man who was right up front, who wouldn't be corrupted by power, and yet who would be true to God, that's what I want. Let me say this, David was not perfect. In fact, we know all his failures. But he had a heart for God. And you find that in passages all over the Psalms where David expresses just what he believed about God. And these words are just, just two passages of perhaps very good examples. Psalm 42 verses 1 to 2. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And in Psalm 139, 23 to 24, search me, O God, try my heart. Uh, know my thoughts, see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Oh, God loved that. Let me say this, what we know about David was that he committed some terrible sins in his lifetime. But you can see the, the heart of God beginning to focus more strongly, even though sin still angers him. Yet on the other hand, there's a growing love, there's a growing compassion. And so that on this occasion, even unlike Moses, who during from the moment that God called him, Moses was true to God except for what might look like minor things, like striking a rock instead of speaking to it. In David's case, it was adultery, it was conspiracy. But the Lord was still able to say to him, but at heart, this man is what I'm looking for. I, I'm going to overlook that for the time being. I'm going to overlook it because I'm, I'm going to get through to mankind somehow. I'm going to get it. And this man loves me from the depth of his being. So I'm going to take him on that basis. When David did sin against God, this is what you find, that once the sin was disclosed to him, you could see what was in his heart. Psalm 51 verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward being. Teach me wisdom in my secret heart. He was cut to the bone for what he had done. Go on to verses 10 to 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. This was a repentant heart crying out for redemption. And again, Psalm 51 verse 17, he says, A sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. Surely, O God, you will not despise a broken and a contrite heart. You see, when God called David, uh, he said to Samuel the priest, who for all his uprightness, Samuel didn't sin like David did, but he just didn't have David's heart. When Samuel went to anoint another king of Israel after Saul, and he looked at the eldest son of David, he saw another man like Saul, good-looking man, strong, physically attractive, 
look the kind of man the Jew would say, oh, this guy's going to be a good leader. And he says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And God says, oh, Samuel, don't make the same mistake again. Surely you've seen with Saul outward strength, outward uh, so, so sort of physical impressiveness. It's no sign of inward character. He said, the Lord looks on not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And in the end, they had to go and find the only son of David that, uh, of uh, Jesse that wasn't there, David himself. He was out in the fields uh, looking after the sheep and what have you. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are not your ways. But David, oh, God said, I love this man. He said, when he does sin against me, he turns. The wrath of God against David sin. Don't think it's being undermined or being lessened here. But it's suspended. Because God says, I can see it. The deep thing I want is to get through to man. If I can get through, things are going to happen. So on the one hand, I see this man yearns for me and loves me. On the other hand, when he does sin, that yearning and that loving cuts him to pieces. Fine by me. I'll stand by him. And so God says, I'm going to give you a son and he will build a temple for my name. A house that would symbolize a kingdom that God was planning. And when it came and Solomon built it, and in faithfulness to God, he didn't ask for riches, he asked for wisdom to lead the people. You, you get the impression that God says to himself, you know, this covenant's finally working. It really looks like it's going to work. What I wanted in the wilderness, I'm going to get now. So this time, instead of stripping the people of everything to get them right, I took away everything. Even the garlic, the leeks, everything, the food they had in Egypt. And I left them in a desert and I gave them just manna to eat and I gave them just water to drink and even that they couldn't always find. This time, God says, for 40 years again, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to let go. So he just allowed them to have all the prosperity they could possibly have. Uh, the Bible says that Solomon at this time, 1 Kings 27, he made silver as common as stone in Jerusalem. The, the enemies of Israel were at peace with it. Hiram from, the, uh, from Tyre, he came and he helped Solomon to build the temple. The queen of Sheba came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Israel was the most powerful nation in the area, at peace with itself, prospering mightily. And when the temple was actually dedicated to God, we read in 1 Kings 8, 10 to 11, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. This was the high watermark of God's relationship with Israel. And as he looked at it, he said, let me let the nation go. Last time I literally straightened the nation to try and draw them towards me. This time I'll let them go and let's see if they'll do it. I think it's going to work. But human nature being what it is, it didn't work. In Solomon's own lifetime, he took his prosperity and he abused it started marrying foreign women. He even brought idolatry into Israel during his lifetime. God said to him through other messengers, I'm going to split your nation in half. And when Solomon died and Rehoboam, his son, took over the leadership of Israel, Jeroboam took ten of the tribes of Israel that were in the northern part and split it out. And he said, I'll be king. God has anointed me over these people. And even he didn't listen to God. When God said, I'm calling you out and I'm making you king over Israel. Leave Rehoboam king over Judah, but you are king over Israel. You think that Jeroboam said, well, I'm not going to make the mistakes that Solomon made? No, he says, I'll perpetuate his errors. I'll perfect his errors. 
So he made two golden calves. Aaron only made one. No, Jeroboam must go one more. I'll make two. I won't have these people going down to worship God in Jerusalem. Next thing, uh, Rehoboam will win them over and I'll be exposed. Oh, I'm not going to let anything happen to me. So he said, right, one golden calf in Dan and one in Bethel. And he made the people turn to idolatry. And from there on, you only have to read the books of the Kings and Chronicles to know that Israel, especially Israel, under Ahaz and other kings just went from one evil king to another until finally the whole lot of them were taken off into Israel, into exile. We've never heard from them since. We don't know what happened to them. God's anger began to really grow now because of an anger that had been suspended for centuries was beginning to boil. And when Judah, at first, you had a lot of kings that were not great, but they were true to God. They were upright. Ahaziah, even other kings like Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Israel never saw kings like those men. Uh, Ahab, he, I mean, he was just a terrible king of Israel. But in his time, the king of Judah was Jehoshaphat. And the two of them, although they would work together, and Jehoshaphat in many ways was a weak man for even coming alongside Ahab. Yet at the same time, the contrast between them was palpable. Jehoshaphat was true to God. Ahab wasn't. But it wasn't long before the kings of Judah went the same way as the kings of Israel. And then Ahaz came along and then Manasseh. You had your Uzziahs, you had your Hezekiahs, but it was going one way downhill. And the anger of God at the same time was just getting to boiling point. And through all the minor prophets, 17 books were written at this time in the Old Testament. God begins on the one hand to express his anger and say, I'm burning with anger against these people. In Hosea, I will destroy you, O Israel. But on the other hand, the burning love of God is just getting warmer and warmer. And it's also reaching boiling point. What do you do? This is something Islam, just Muslims just don't know and understand. What was going in the heart of God? The two foremost characteristics of God's nature are on the one hand his righteousness and the other hand his love. Whether he's got 99 or 100 names or how many other attributes doesn't matter. And these two were reaching boiling point and in collision with each other because it was the very nature of them. And here you see the heart of God coming out in his love for his people. Zechariah 10 verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. <clears throat> they will be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. I will, I will, I will. New language. In the earlier days it was you shall and you shall not. Now the love of God is reaching such a pitch that he's saying within himself while at the same time my anger is burning hot and it's going to burst any time on these people. Yet my love is burning equally hot. I've got to do something and I'm going to do it. Whatever it takes is going to come from me. I will, I will, I will. I will not execute my fierce anger, God said. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come to destroy. And I love this language. In the time of Moses, you shall and you shall not. And God says, I will and I will not. I will redeem and I will not judge. And you can just see the whole thing reaching a pivotal point. But... Let's just stop here for a moment as if we are at the foot of the burning bush and we take our feet off because we're standing on holy ground. This was a crucial moment in not the history of Israel, but the history of God's attitude to his people.
what do I do? I don't want to say he'd reached a crisis point that no such thing as a crisis for God. But in human terms, you'll understand what I mean when I say that. What do I do? If I just let my wrath go and just like a balloon, just pinprick it, it's going to burst all over this humanity and I'm going to call Israel to judgment. And as for the nations who've rejected me, I'll deal with them the same way. I'll write them off, I'll destroy them and I won't be any worse off for it. But what about this burning love? What about everything I've invested in humanity? What about the fact that the more they sin against me, the more I love them? Ephraim, my darling child, as often as I speak against him, God says, I still remember him. I'll surely have mercy on him. You can't miss it. If you read these books very carefully, you can see this constant tension, this virtually pivotal point that God had got to in saying, what do I do? Well, if I can use a human expression, just reverently, God said, I'll go for broke. I'm going to continue to suspend my wrath. In fact, this time I'm going to do it so much that I'm not going to stick my righteousness in the face of the human race anymore. You know what I'm going to do, God said? I'm going to go for broke. I'm going to do this. I'm going to suspend my righteousness. I'm going to have a golden age, unlike the age of Moses where it was almost all the time righteousness on the end of a short leash. This time it's going to be grace on the end of a very long arm. I'm going to unfold my arms. I'm going to offer in a golden age of peace and of uh, grace between me and my people, nothing but the hand of mercy. I'll offer them eternal life as a gift. I'll tell them if they turn and believe in me now, they'll never see my wrath. Not an ounce of it. I'm going to redeem them because Jeremiah 31 verse 3, he speaks out his mind and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And for that reason, I'm going to continue my faithfulness to you. What a statement. For me, that is my favorite text in my favorite book of the whole Old Testament, Jeremiah. It's the moment where it turns. The Old Testament does not turn at the end of Malachi. It turns here. And immediately in the same chapter, he goes on and says what he's going to do. And now in the context of what we said and what we know about Islam, listen to these words. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, Though I was their husband, says the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And what's more, I will remember their sin no more. <laughs> Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. What an incredible passage of scripture. What an awesome promise. Now we are, I'm sorry, light years ahead of Islam. When you look at that repetitive static religion of Islam that tells you that you cannot draw nearer to God than as a servant of God, just look at what God has opened up here. This is way beyond Moses. I showed you how at the time of Moses, the mere fact of God dwelling among his people was a transformation. Even though 
His righteousness and wrath were on a short leash the moment they sinned against him. This time God says, I'm going to dwell in my people. I'm going to guarantee their obedience. I'm not going to uh, let their sinfulness and their failures affect me at all. I must I just picture the angels of heaven shaking their heads and saying, how's he going to get this right? He can't deny his wrath. He can't deny his righteousness. How's he going to get that right? I'll come back to that. He says, no, let me tell you for the moment, I've made my decision, God says, and I'm going to commit myself and there's no turning back. I will get inside them. I'll put my law in their hearts. I'll write it there. I'll inscribe it there. And I will forgive their sins, every one of them. So that we can have a comfortable relationship. So I never feel myself on the end of a short leash with them again. And this time, I'm going to guarantee their obedience. Wow. And as if that wasn't enough, God waits till the prophet Ezekiel comes and he says more. And again, the angels must have looked back and said, oh, never heard anything like this before. and don't know how he's going to do it. But listen to these words from Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. A new heart. I will give you a new spirit I will put within you. I'll take out of your flesh the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. That's the ultimate commitment. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. And again, Ezekiel 37, 23, I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. <laughs> this is awesome stuff. God is saying, back there in the wilderness, I lived among my people on a short leash. This time, I'm going to get inside my people with no leash. I mean, right inside them, write my law in their hearts, put my own spirit within them. And if these evil people think, that at the depth of their being, they can find enough scheming evil against me to reject me as they did in the past. They're in for a surprise because all they're going to find there this time is my spirit. And my spirit is going to stop them. And even if they do conceive evil, and even if they do fail me, down there at the depth of their being, I will have a different source and they will turn and I will make them walk in my ways. And what he's really saying is, I will guarantee the salvation of my people, I'll guarantee their obedience, I'll make sure this covenant works. Woof! Oh, if only Muslims could see this. If only the Jews could see this. The Jewish error was to miss this. Miss this completely. A woman caught in the act of adultery is brought in before Jesus and they say to him, in the law Moses commanded us to stone such. This is six, four or five hundred years after what God has said here. Did they not hear these words? Did they not know that when the Messiah would come, it's going to be a different story, he's going to turn it around? It talked as if God hadn't progressed with his depth of his love towards his people at all. But still the angels must by now have wanted to say to God, excuse us, so very reverently we want to ask you a question. Sure, go ahead. How are you going to do this? Your wrath is what it is. Your righteousness is what it is. Don't tell us that your wrath has gone from boiling point to below freezing. It's still there, it's still hot. Oh, as sure it is, says God. I've worked out the answer to that. All right. Tell us. He said, well, Zechariah 3, verses 8 to 9. I will bring my servant the branch, one man, and I will remove the guilt of this land in a single day. I'll wipe it out in one day. What he was saying was, I'll pay the price myself. To, this is where we are really on holy ground. 
If Moses took his shoes off at the foot of the burning bush, I'm not sure what we have to take off when we stand here. Because at this point, God is just turning on himself. He says, I'm going to exercise that wrath. I'm going to burn it out at the depth of its heat, at the pitch of its uh, white-hot boiling level. I'll turn it on myself. I'll pay the supreme price. My own son be sent into the world and we will redeem this world. For God, it was the highest price he could possibly pay. I, I think he must have, in human terms, spent a lot of time thinking about this and possibly looked for every other possible alternative. If he could have found one, he would have done it. He didn't want to do this. He knows what his wrath is. To turn it on your own son. Now, I've got two sons. If I had to turn wrath on anybody, it would be the last two people I'd want to turn them on. And for him to do this would have just burnt him to the core of his being. And the reason I know this is because when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's exactly what he did. The Son of God looked up to his Father and even though he knew all those prophecies and even though just an hour or two earlier he had said to his disciples, everything written in the prophets about me has to be fulfilled. This is the way the scriptures are. I've come to fulfill them. And yet how many times he'd said the Son of Man will be crucified and he knew all the Old Testament prophecies. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, he just falls on his face and he says, My father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. If there's, even at this stage, any other way of avoiding this, take it from me. If you can get what you want by any other means, please do so. Because for him, the consequence of what he was about to face in taking all human sinfulness and the consequence and the boiling hot wrath of God on himself was just too much. No answer from heaven. There was no other way. And so he paid it. You know, in Jeremiah, which I said to you, it's not just my favorite book in the Old Testament, it's my favorite book in the Bible. Because this is where God pours his heart out. This is where he talks in blunt language. Early, I think it's Jeremiah 3 or 4. Just acknowledge your guilt that you sinned against me, says the Lord. He talks bluntly to his people here. But once he'd made that promise, listen to what he says, just knowing for the next 400 years that it was nothing but a cross, nothing but wrath, nothing but a painful transition before he could get what he wanted, he allows himself a brief moment. Just a brief moment to look over the horizon and see what the consequence would be. Like it says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Well, listen, God's joy, great joy and tangible relief. He says, once having committed himself I'm going to pay the supreme price and I'm going to get what I want and I'll get the finest relationship with my people I could ever get. Get right inside them. He said, they shall be my people. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Just doesn't come better than that. That's Jeremiah 33, 38 to 41. And then from there, we go on to Jeremiah 33, 8. Right at the same time, just after he had promised the new covenant. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. 
the light of God shining brighter than ever. Islam has never seen that light. Muhammad never saw it. Quran doesn't mention it. Moses reflected it off his face. The light was God's, but Moses reflected it. Solomon saw it in the nation when the glory of God filled the temple. But when Jesus came into the world, the light shone out of him. You all know the story. Every Christian knows it. When Matthew 17, when Jesus took Peter and James and John apart, up a mountain just as Moses had been taken up a mountain as well. And as Moses just said, let me just see your glory. And the Lord said, you'll see the reverse of it, just a reflection, just a shadow. Jesus just transfigured himself in front of them and they saw it in all its fullness. It said his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I think it's Mark who says his face shone like no fuller bleach could bleach it. Oh, it's, they just couldn't find human language to define the glory of what they saw. They saw the glory of God, but they saw it in a human being. Oh, unbelievable. And at that moment, you had your clear hint of what was coming. In fact, as scholars have pointed out, if you look in Matthew's Gospel, everything builds up to this glorious point where Jesus transfigures himself. But the moment he does so, and he comes down from the mountain, from there it's one way downhill. Son of man, he said to his disciples, be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me as well. From there on, it's a very dry, dusty path to a cross. But when Jesus rose from the dead and took our sins against himself and exhausted the wrath of God against sin at the cross, everything changed. Ten days after his ascension to heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out, came down upon the disciples. They didn't look as though they changed. I mean, little tongues of fire could be seen visibly. But from the outside, they still looked as ordinary as anybody else. But from the inside, there was a new burning fire and light. Now, God was dwelling comfortably in man. Now, I always know this. The Bible tells you, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can grieve him, you can hurt him, but you can't annoy him, you can't irritate him, you can't offend him. God's spirit lives within every true believer as God was handling David, putting away our sin. In our case, unlike David, God was suspending his rights with us. He hasn't suspended anything. He's exhausted it, sorted it out. When the spirit of God lives in me personally, he lives comfortably within me. You're far more patient with me than I am with myself. I get irritated with myself. Like David, I get annoyed at the depth of my sinfulness within me. But however the Spirit of God feels about it, he knows the first and second persons of the Trinity settled it. And therefore, he holds every true Christian believer born of God in the highest esteem because he knows the price the first two persons of the Trinity paid to get us back into that relationship. So he's comfortable with us. God living in us, never offended, never annoyed, grieved, but never angry. God with his people in the Old Testament times, now God in his people. So I've said in another lecture, but I've got to say it here, I just can't miss this. In the Old Testament times, when the cloud moved, the people had to move. When the cloud stayed, the people stayed. Wherever God went, they had to go to keep close to him. But now, wherever I go, God goes. If I move, he moves. If I stay, he stays, because he lives in me. The Holy Spirit lives in every Christian believer. 
and he follows us around. And believe me, the people of old tried to shake God off. Don't try to shake the Holy Spirit off. He just won't go. Anyway, from the depth of our beings, God has ensured that no true born-again Christian believer, no child of God, no candidate for heaven would ever want to shake him off. And this is the glory of the difference between Christianity and Islam. We have seen the climax of all God's revelation. We experience it. We, we are, as Ephesians says, we're already seated in heavenly places with God while the Muslims are slaving it out in, their, in the mosque every day, going through the same old routines just to try and gain the favor of God. The moment anyone believes in Jesus and becomes a savior, it's settled. He begins with salvation. The Muslim's just hoping that he'll end with it. That all his energies, all his prayers, all his pilgrimages, all his fastings will one day somehow gain the favor of God. Whereas right here in Jesus, God says, just believe in him and I'll give it to you. Give it to you as a gift. We start where Muslims hope to end and won't end. And we start successfully there. So that for us, it's a faith-based relationship. It's not trying to gain God's approval. It's not trying to respond to his righteousness. No, it's just a faith-based relationship, living by faith in God's faithfulness and rejoicing in what's coming to us. I often ask Muslims three questions, especially those that I can see that are open enough to hear these. Do you know God personally? It's the first one. Second one is, have your sins been forgiven for his sake? And thirdly, do you love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? I get a variety of answers to those questions. But a young Muslim woman in my hometown in South Africa about two years ago gave me the only correct Islamic answer to the, all these three questions. And it went like this. It is impossible to know God. You cannot know God personally. Islam tells you that God cannot be known. Secondly, it's impossible according to Islam to ever know this side of the grave that your sins are forgiven. You just hope that'll happen in the next world. Thirdly, do I love God with all my heart, with all my soul and all my mind? <laughs> Never thought about that. And she looked and she thought, I don't know. I didn't ever think about it. You know why? She doesn't find the Allah of Islam lovable. What else he is, is not attractive to Muslims. But the God we believe in has a supreme attraction for any human being on earth. It has to be the ultimate attraction because he paid the price himself. That shows the depth of his love for us. It guarantees it. I always say to myself, never say to yourself, yes, I know Jesus died for me and forgave my sins, but if God really loved me, he'd listen to my prayers. Why am I going through this financial difficulty at this time? Why is my mother suffering so much with her illness? Why, as Bart Ehrman says in his book, God's Problem, why can we never resolve this question of suffering? He's written a whole book to tell you and to tell the world that according to the Bible, the problem of human suffering has not been solved by God. The whole of his book is on that subject. And he once claimed that he was an evangelical Christian and he went to Moody Bible College and that he served the Lord Jesus Christ with all fervor. I just wonder what he ever learned, whatever got into his being. Because as I understand it, all human suffering, all human failure, everything has been resolved. In one thing, believe me, if the Lord God turned to me and he said, John Gilchrist, I offer you one of two things. I will give you a happy life. 
I will give you perfect health. I will make your family prosper. I'll give you the Midas touch. Everything you touch will turn to gold. For as long as you live till you die at about 75 or 80, which is about as long as you can hope to live, I'll make it all go your way and you will have no complaints and you'll think I'm the most wonderful, beneficent God in the world. Alternatively, I guarantee none of those things. You might get the opposite. In fact, I'm going to ask you to forgo a whole lot of that. I will forgive your sins. Believe me, I know which one I choose. When Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins, God gave his answer to human suffering, took it on himself. He suffered in a way that we will never know or understand, not even in eternity, to open the door for us. We become the sons and daughters of God. I am told, it's coming your way. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and the heart of man has never conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. It's coming your way. But in the next world, because that's where I will raise you to glory. Right now, uh, you've been crucified with my son. Right now, I ask you to live out your days in nothing but perfect faith, in my faithfulness. Don't let go. But you've got enough evidence in the death of my son that I love you with all my heart and with all my soul. I've given everything I could for you. I can give you no more. That's not good enough. I've got nothing more to give you. When we get to heaven, Christian believers, that light that Peter, James, and John saw in Jesus is going to shine in us. It's not going to bounce off us like it bounced off Moses. It's not going to fade at any time like it did. We're not going to have to put a veil over our face to stop everybody around us seeing the end of the fading glory. Oh, no. It's going to be, as Jesus said, like a well of water welling up within you to eternal life. Well, this is going to be like a generating power of light, like our sun, like the stars, like anything else. Nothing can quench because it's his light. The second person of the Trinity is today human. That's what the disciples saw when Jesus was transfigured. That's what John saw in the Isle of Patmos when he saw him in glory. But And they both use the same expression. Revelation 1, Matthew 17, his face shone like the sun, not like the moon. See, I can look at the moon anytime, even at full moon. It's bright, but very bright through a telescope. It doesn't touch my eyes. But believe me, don't try to look at the sun's light at any time of day. It's too bright to be comprehended. And Jesus' light and God's light is the same. But Jesus said, Matthew 13, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We won't reflect the glory of God. That light that bounced off Moses and faded, that filled the temple and eventually filled the man Jesus from within, is going to shine through us from within. We are going to generate the light of God back to him in perfect fullness. That's the heart of our message to Islam. The revelation of God was an expansive revelation, expanding to the point of perfect glory and perfect light. The Muslims, oh, a static religion that, believe me, by the time of Moses, God had already dispensed with, never introduced it. He had a bigger goal in mind than that goal remains. What a gospel we have to share with the Muslims. And I just commend to you this message this morning that I've given mainly as a message of witness rather than apologetics, certainly it's not apologetics. But we're on the cutting edge between Islam and Christianity. We both claim to be the fulfillment that everything that Judaism was working towards. You tell the Muslims what I've told them and let them decide for themselves where that climax is.